Hello to our new episode. Uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. It's our second deep dive episode. So a little bit like the Yellow Turbans one that we did a few months ago. And in this one, we're thinking about the fall of the Han Dynasty. Today, I'm joined by an all-star lineup. We've got Jude, Drew, and Gong Jin with us. So an abundance of expertise and thoughts to be shared with us. Do you all want to say hello? Do we have to? Um, no, we can be unfriendly <laughs> if you want. <laughs> pleasure to be here. Hello, pleasure to be here too. Glad to be back. We're delighted that you've all joined us, um, other than you, Jude, because you don't sound delighted to be here. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to going into a bit of depth with you guys. So uh, as we've said before, with Deep Dive episodes, we're not going to be looking at a specific chapter. Instead, we're going to be spending more time going into a bit more depth on the history. Our normal spoiler embargo is lifted. So if you are reading the novel for the first time and you don't want to find out spoilers, then this might not be the episode for you. And I'm really excited because we've got some really interesting things that we're going to cover, including Gon Jin, who has been recently doing some study around natural disasters and climate change, who's going to be going into a lot of depth on what was going on in China in this period. But before we get there, shall we just outline the narrative of what led to the fall of the Han Dynasty? So who wants to kick us off? So traditionally, and this is something the novel follows, it has been a very simple idea of what went wrong. Emperor Huan and Ling were both inept emperors, chose the wrong advisors, particularly eunuchs and two powerful females who misruled more via ineptitude rather than cruelty. And that this drove a long-standing dynasty into a world of trouble, like the Yellow Turban Rebellion leading to chaos in one nighty that will lead to the civil war we're about to enter in the novel. So our regular listeners will be aware that that narrative goes on, but will probably also be aware that we are a little bit sceptical that things were that simple. So where do we critique that popular understanding? So I think one of the main problems with the narrative is the depictions of eunuchs as absolute bad people. So yes, some eunuchs are not your best officials, but there are also many good eunuchs. So one particular example would be Chao Teng, the grandfather of Chao Chao. So he was in the central government for over 30 years, and he was said to be very good at nominating the virtuous and capable people. Many people actually became excellencies or ministers because of his nomination. And in one particular incident, when an official discovered and reported a bribe to Chao Teng from another province, Chao Teng actually did not mind the report at all and instead often praised the official for being a very upright and loyal person. And when this official became the excellency over the masses sometime later, he often commented that he could only reach that position that day because of Chao Teng. So that's part of the reasons why it's not as simple as just bad eunuchs. As well as the eunuchs, where you do see modern historians pressing against the idea of it's the eunuchs. If you're creating a work of fiction, it's very easy to understand. It's also how people view history work. The last emperors must have been poor rulers, whereas historians try to look at a longer term problems. What was going on before them? Were there economic problems? Were there military problems? What were the long term pressures going on? So short termism creates easy scapegoats like the eunuchs, who still get sort of reviled in games and literature today. Okay, so we're saying that this is an oversimplification. The eunuchs were easy bad guys 
to pick up on and really to understand what's going on here is really important that we place what happened in the last few years in its proper context and to think about the Han Dynasty in a little bit more depth. You've got these different factions. We've kind of touched on that in a couple of different episodes, that there were different factions who wanted control of the emperor. Traditionally, and what was perceived as the best way of that of influence being wielded was by the court officials who were meant to work in a good order, proposing things to the emperor and the emperor doing the right things off of the back of that. But this actually went wrong really quite early on. Even in the uh, earlier Han Dynasty, this wasn't really how things worked. You had the great officials of state, but ultimately there was a an inner court, people who weren't necessarily officially appointed, but the people that had the ear of the emperor who made things happen. You can see that in modern day politics, where perhaps it's You've got the person who's in charge. I think in the UK, you have the prime minister. It was particularly prominent under Tony Blair, one of the former prime ministers, where people complained that it wasn't the cabinet who made decisions. It was a small cadre of unelected officials who were appointed directly by Tony Blair, who had his ear and who made decisions, most famously, Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell. And so the same kind of things were going on there. They might not have officially had power, but they unofficially had power because they had uh, the ear of the emperor. And so you then end up with these different factions growing up. You've got the court officials and the landed nobility, who at one point would have been rivals, but they kind of got squashed into being allies because of these other new factions that came up. One we've spoken about quite a lot, the eunuchs, and the other were the families of the empress. So why did both of those two factions come into prominence? Well, I would say on the one hand, you have the families of the empress, her relatives, will typically come into power whenever the empress takes on that role with the emperor who is her husband, and then especially more so when that one's passed away and she becomes the dowager to the next empress, who is usually her son. The empress rarely has much inherent support among the court officials, and so she is always wanting to bring in her own relatives to balance things out so she'll have people who are working for her interests at court and in the government. And typically, they'll amass so much power that it will trigger reaction among another faction, usually the court officials, sometimes with the eunuchs, as we see in later Han, that drives them out of power, only to have the cycle repeat again for whoever becomes the next empress. And on the other hand, you have the court officials who are typically drawn from the great families, the landed gentry across the realm. They feel the emperor has a right to rule but they have a right to rule with him, that he should be always willing to listen to their advice, to what they're thinking, that they should have an active participation in government. I suppose as close as it comes to an oligarchy in Chinese political philosophy. And so whenever they feel that they're being alienated from power, when you've got, in modern times, you'd call it a kitchen cabinet. In those times, the eunuchs or whoever has power just because they are close to the actual person of the emperor. Whoever is shutting them out, they'll want to push back against that, both on philosophical grounds and just on terms of their own interests. Absolutely. And Jude, do you want to pick up on that third faction, why the eunuchs in particular then got power, thinking about the importance of the dowager family, perhaps? A lot of the emperors liked to do things 
in their own personal space. The eunuchs would have to carry out a lot of the tasks, getting the paper, doing the writing, delivering the messages. That was one way they gained influence. But they would also be assigned to the empress, the empress dowager's house, sorting out and recording who slept with the emperor and organizing that. There would also be eunuchs in the crown prince's palace, which meant when the crown prince came of age, which was quite rare, there were, he would have established relations with eunuchs. It's also for many emperors, the eunuchs were a useful backstop, a useful ally, because while the eunuchs were never one whole grouping, they all had different factions, their own different interests. Their entire future relied on the, the emperor doing well. They were loyal within their own way to the empire, whereas the gentry had their own connections. They were loyal to the emperor, but they were also loyal to their families, to their clients, to their patrons. And the emperor was just part of a complex social network in that respect. Whereas the eunuchs, because their entire authority relied on the emperor, and what he gave them and his support. They were more reliable in terms of sticking with the emperor. And this became more and more of an issue when you had young emperors who grew up and said, hey, aren't I supposed to be ruling? And their regents were going, no, no, that's a silly idea. You don't want to do that. It's where latter Han emperors would have to try and overthrow their controllers or the Empress Dowager, and they kept having to rely on eunuch support. Naturally, any emperor doing that is going to be grateful to the people who helped them, not to the people who supported their oppressor. So it's interesting, isn't it? And unfortunate for the latter Han dynasty that they, there was this constant succession of emperors dying fairly young and child emperors coming the new ruler, which created this power vacuum that these three factions then warred to fill. And as you say, the one faction that the emperor could often rely on purely to be supporting him was the eunuchs. But that obviously upset other two factions. That is really interesting because I think we tend to think of emperors and rulers as being able to do whatever they want and having no limits to their authority. We see that that's not the case here, don't we? I think part of this is also really because they were very young when it first became an emperor. They would often need guardians or protectors of some sort to help them make decisions. And that's when we have consort kings or even the scholar officials to come in, the gantry clans. And being people, people do not want to give up power. So even after the emperors get older, they tend not to give up the power. And I think especially in the later Han context, because of the young emperors dying early, the emperors do not often have a child or that they don't often have a child with the official empress. So it ended up such that the consort kings actually had no blood relations to any of the young emperors that were thrown. And because of that, then there wasn't really a shared interest between the consort kings and the emperors to, to share power and so on. And that's where we have a sort of contradictory power struggles. I think one other key thing to keep in mind is that the emperor is not only not all-powerful, but they're not all-knowing. They don't necessarily know what they should be doing something about, what is a problem what their possible choices are to address that problem. And when it comes to the eunuchs especially, one issue they can present is that they control the information that actually reaches the emperor's ears. So you might have officials across the realm sending in reports of famine or rebellion or this flooding. If the report doesn't make it to the emperor's desk because the eunuchs decide he doesn't need to hear about it, he might not know it's a problem he even needs to address until it's too late to take any reasonable steps to fix it. Even though the emperor 
held power under the concept of heaven's mandate. His authority didn't actually extend in the same way that that the heaven's authority would. He was in a position where he was forced to negotiate with others. And as Drew said, he wasn't, he's not God. He's not all-knowing. He is limited in his capacity to to make changes because of the problems that he may not be aware of. Even when it's not the eunuchs, he's also relying on his officials reporting from the provinces accurately. When they came to the empresses, you very much get northwest families like the Mars, the Songs, the Liangs, and you also get families from Nanyang, which were the like the Hers, the Dos, the Dengs. But an emperor couldn't choose his wife. It would have to be from one of those two areas, which were the traditional supporting areas of the Han, of sufficient background, someone that the gentry would generally support and would consider proper. Sometimes they might have to depose an emperor, less because of personal stuff going on in the harem, but because politically they needed to shift the signal of alliance. And that happened even with the founding emperor of the later Han. He had to divorce his first wife, Amokabi, it seems, because families from the Nanyang area were demanding that their candidate be promoted to empress, their candidate become heir to the throne. Before people developed too much sympathy for the emperor here, although he didn't get to choose his empress, he did get to choose the dozens and maybe even hundreds of women that were his consorts. And so I, I struggle to have too much sympathy, but it is helpful as a representative to, to think about the limits on the emperor's power. So uh, we've kind of been speaking generally, let's now dive into some specifics. And I think probably it's helpful to think about the Dao clan to start off with and think about what they did and then what the consequences were of their behavior. So Jude, you've mentioned the Dao clan once or twice already. Who were they and what was their connection with the Han dynasty? They were from Nanyang. They were important supporters to the lighter Han. And so from very early on, they were candidates or figure people they supported were candidates for the emperor's position. The Do clan in particular, I think a good example of perhaps the biggest issue all through the latter Han dynasty was they kept having to deal with this dance of compromise and conflict between factions. It's very rare that anyone is actively anti-Han. No one is necessarily against the dynasty, but each faction thinks they can maneuver for their benefit. They can get more of the share, maybe take away some from an enemy faction without it affecting the health of the state overall. The first couple of emperors are more politically astute. They can manage to keep all these plates spinning so everyone's a little bit happy. Everyone's got something to satisfy them, but no one gets too powerful. None of the choices they have to make are too detrimental to the state. But eventually you get to a place where with so many child emperors, there's no more good neutral umpire that can manage between everyone. And it becomes straight faction on faction. And so whoever wins each battle, it just tends to chip away a little bit more at the health of the state. The finances are less stable or more conflict is stirred up on the borders. You start to have talk about abandoning territory just because no one in a position of power that's not really in their interests. And so they might be the first major instance of that coming to a head. Were really important. Uh, tell us about Dao Wu and his time in of prominence. Yep. So for Dao Wu, I think the main thing is that he participated in a sort of failed plot against the Yunnan. 
So the context was that following the death of Emperor Huan, a lot of scholar officials and gantry clans led by people like Dao Wu petitioned for the court to arrest and execute the powerful eunuchs. But this was surprisingly refused by her sister, the Empress Dowager Dou. So the scholar officials, after hearing this rejection, decided to take matters in their own hands and try to remove these eunuchs with their own plot to just grab them and kill them. But unfortunately, the eunuchs discovered this plot before they could actually react. And the eunuchs reacted quite violently by initiating a coup before the officials could take any actions. So they went to imprison the Empress Dowager. They went to deceive the young emperor. And based on that, they issued false edicts to clear out all these scholar officials and gantries. So because of this, a lot of the leaders of these scholar officials, including Dao himself, they were either killed or forced to suicide. And many of their supporters were actually either imprisoned or also captured and killed. So the eunuchs then went on further and advised Emperor Ling to continue pursuing all those that escaped. And this actually led to the killing and imprisonment of hundreds of scholars like across the Han Empire. So many people were actually forced into hiding through this. This was actually quite a bloody event that was known as the partisan conflict, partisan prohibitions. Thank you, Gong Jin. So there were some consequences of that. Firstly, it meant that almost all the appointments that took place from that time onwards were friends of the eunuchs or clients of the eunuchs, dependents on the eunuchs, which gave them a much greater control over the court than they'd ever ever had previously. And I, I want to suggest that I think one of the other consequences is that the, the great families faction no longer being able to influence at the centre uh, started putting greater emphasis on regional politics and it led to the rise of families having greater influence in their local areas which actually, in the grand scheme of things, is the reason that warlords were able to be successful. It's something that Mark Edward Lewis writes about in his book, China Between Empires. I suspect that's a theme we'll pick up more as we move further through history. Jude, what did you want to say about that? I mean, the likes of the Yon and the Yang clans were still at court. There were still powerful families acting as opposition to Emperor Ling and his eunuchs. It more accelerated the trend that was going on, the sort of a belief that it was better to cultivate your inner self-worth and moral authority at home, living a gentry life, than going for the necessarily serving the court. And that sort of people started selecting their position. Well, they're already doing it somewhat, but again, accelerated trend of people selecting jobs based on who would be their boss. The eunuchs certainly pushed hard against their opponents, and it was a devastating blow for them, particularly because the charge of faction was so easy to hit gentry opponents with, because that is what they were doing. They were making friends, they were patronage networks were a key part of the gentry's power, and that made them very, very easy to go hey, you're allying with this family, this family, this family. And the eunuch's reaction is completely understandable, isn't it? I mean, what was going on is Du Wu's grouping wanted to kill all the eunuchs. So saying, we're banning you from office and we're going to throw about 100 of you in prison, actually, in the grand scheme of things, feels like a fairly limited pushback. So we're not trying to paint the eunuchs as the villains here. They are one faction, and this period allowed them to hold a greater period of ascendancy than they'd had previously. Yeah, and it allowed them to basically stop the Imperial University where protesters were possibly numbering in the tens of thousands. The Imperial University had basically become a anti-eunuch stronghold. And so it was very useful for them to sweep that away. 
Well, I would say one trend of the era coming from that is you tend to see from the people in power, the government side, you tend to see more and more extreme options resorted to banning so many people from holding office or arranging to have your opponents executed on false charges. And then on the other side, the folks who are out of power tend to resort more and more to extra legal options. You know, if you can't bring someone to justice, maybe you'll just go in there and kill them yourself. We'll just get in some soldiers and we'll storm the palace and drag the eunuchs out that way. And I think that contributes to each time someone does something like that, everyone else is more willing to say, well, you know, if they can get away with that, maybe we'll go even further next time because the stakes tend to be so high on getting or keeping power between the factions. You also saw that in the provinces where eunuch supporters were clashing with gentry supporters. It could get very, very violent as they tried to break each other, not only in displays of wealth, but literally, I and my retainers will use our positions to murder the other side. And then if the emperors tried to intervene, there would be complaints at court that the emperor was being unjust. Jude, what was going on with the central court's finances during this time? The Han believed that they needed to promote agriculture. It was something the gentry agreed with. It was, they set a low, what was in theory, a low tax rate on land. So a farmer would, in theory, was meant to earn about an income of about 15,000 cash a year from their crops, from second industries. A farmer would then pay seven or eight to eight hundred cash per year. But the Han then added other taxes. There was a poll tax of 120 per adult, 23 for children above a certain age. If you weren't going to serve in the armies, you would pay 300 cash to pay for someone else to do it. There are property taxes, hay taxes. For the Han, ideally, this would pull in about... 1 billion to 1.2 billion a year but it's thought generally among historians that it actually pulls in 500 million a year so just under half of what they're supposed to ideally get because the tax collectors would negotiate with the powerful and with communities to get their expected quota they weren't actually going for what the actual tax was. We don't have uh, salary costs for the later Han. Hans Bielstein and Michael Lowe looked towards the former Han, and though it's not exact because there were rank changes, income changes, it's thought the, if the former Han's any example, the later Han would have been paying about 200 million each year on wages of their officials. So that was quite a drain before you got into subsidies of tribes to keep them from attacking or to keep them friendly, any costs of the emperor and his dowager, any relief efforts needed at a local level. It ended up with the worst of both worlds and the tax system would, for many people, become crushing, not to tax the rich enough while not providing the harm caught enough wealth. So by the 140s, there were already signs that the Han's finances were in disarray, and it just got worse and worse and worse as they had more and more pressures to deal with. So that's true for the court, but what's interesting is that certainly by 178 AD and Emperor Ling Di, he was selling ranks quite a lot of money. So in order to become one of the three excellencies, it was 10 million to secure a post. And for one of the nine ministers, that was 5 million. And to be a governor of one of the hundred or so commanderies was 20 million in currency. The problem was that all of that money was stored in the Western Quarters, which was the emperor's private treasury. And the only time he offered any of that money to the wider government was 
Mansfield Beck says rather ironically, when the emperor magnanimously offered horses to the armies fighting against the yellow turbans, that was the only time he offered any of that money he raised from the sale of ranks to the rest of the government. Otherwise, it was spent on him, his mother, and some of his favourite eunuchs. So he himself had no reason to not have money, but sadly, it didn't help the country all that much. But it was interesting that he could expect and negotiate with officials for millions of cash each time he made changes. And while a grand administrator or governor of an area might expect around three years posting, the excellencies and ministers could get changed quite frequently. Which in itself was a change that came about from instability, wasn't it? Because it became this expectation that if there was a negative omen, then the excellencies would be sacked because it was clearly because they weren't doing their job properly which was great for the emperor because it meant he could sell that rank again. Whereas a few generations earlier, you'd have been in that job and you'd have expected to have been in that job until you retired. I wonder why the emperor liked this new system of being able to get 3 million cash or 10 million cash every couple of years. Yes. One other factor you see contributing to a particular income problem for later Han, and this affected other dynasties as well, but the, I'd say for them it was particularly bad, was you would get situations where fewer and fewer people in the population would remain on the public register rolls that the government was aware of them and w- would be in a position to tax them. Because all too often you would have powerful local landholding gentry families would approach local poor families and say, you know, you're being taxed so much. Why don't you come and live on our land? You can stop paying so much money to the government. Just pay us a little less than that. And we'll, we'll protect you from having to pay all that tax. You won't have to be conscripted for labor or the military sent off somewhere by the government as long as you benefit our land holdings. To a large degree, because the later Han government had to compromise so much with the gentry families, they were in less of a position to clamp down on this sort of thing. Every so often, you see reports of a enterprising official will go through a local area and uncover large groups of people in these arrangements that have been taken to private lands that the government doesn't have them on their rolls anymore puts them back on the public rolls and makes them taxpayers again. But as you might think, this is very unpopular with the local landholding families. And so if you're not in a position to challenge them, they'll typically take more and more of these people, leaving fewer and fewer to actually pay taxes toward the government. Who would then be put under more strain because the tax collectors to make up their quota might start pushing more and more onto the little guys who are already struggling. It's a vicious cycle. It is. And obviously, those people were now in relationships with those big families. So when those important families wanted to raise armies, they already had a great deal of people who were personally loyal to them, which meant that they had a ready, ready uh, group of people to recruit from, which is where lots of the armies came for the putting down of the yellow turbans in the first place. This is why you sometimes saw in early in the dynasty, you would see the government would every so often round up the members of these larger landholding families, move them away from their homeland, put them in the capital region where you could keep a closer eye on them. But that was much less possible when the government is weaker and has to work with instead of against the local families. There were a lot of displaced people as well, that if you're a wealthy person, you could just hire to act as a retainer to do your dirty work, including murder, to look impressive for you when you're trying to outboast your neighbours. While for the harm, they meant they can access them, they'll try to get them back onto the fields, but by 
paying for seeds and oxen and iron ploughs, but Han started to struggle to afford to do that. And people didn't necessarily want to try again on their farms, even if the cost to serving the Gentry family was not necessarily pleasant. Okay, so this led to the Han dynasty losing income from the regions. And it also led to a loss of authority, didn't it? Because if you're a client of a great family and you feel that you've been abused by someone, who are you going to turn to for help? Are you going to turn to the independent court official or are you going to turn to the person who you're loyal to, who in theory should be looking after you as well? Logically, you're going to look to the powerful families to to support your claims. So it meant the court officials or or the, the local Han authority was diminished in that way as well. The problem is if you're looking to turn to someone, the problem is the local officials would be from those same families. While the grand administrators were meant to be from the outside, their own interests would be connected to said families. They didn't want to get stabbed to death when they got home. Their officials, like the officers of merit and the people governing things at an even lower level than the grand administrators, they would actually be from the local families or clients of the local families. So again, if you're being mistreated, your best option was your own patron. Otherwise, you're kind of on your own. Well, I'm really hoping you got an energetic official who is willing to risk a rebellion. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that at this point, the Han Dynasty was not in a very good place. And that wasn't helped by climate change, was it, Gongjin? So while we had many problems in governance and administration, as we talked about earlier, there were also many troubles from the environment. So as a result, there's lots of disasters occurring near the end of the later Han. From the records, there were at least 24 earthquakes and more than 10 major floods in about the 40 years of Emperor Huan and Ling. And together, there were about 90 disasters and hazards for the same period. So it's quite a peak, even in Chinese history. Were there other factors that could explain the sharp rise in known disasters? Yes, we can certainly, at least to some extent, attribute the rise to environmental problems. But of course, there are also some nuances. So with the rise of Confucianism during the end of the former Han and the continued adoption in the later Han, there was a rising focus on observing and analyzing such drastic changes or disasters. So Confucianism at this point emphasized a lot on the connection between the ruler, the son of heaven, to the welfare of the state. So if the son of heaven is doing his job well, the land will prosper and be free of all these disasters and drastic events. Whereas if the son of heaven is fearing his job, the state will suffer and experience all these kinds of disasters and strange phenomena as a warning and an omen from the heavens. So in many cases, when we have such warnings from the heavens, there will be a lot of political gestures to try to appease the gods. There will be things like emperors issuing edicts to admit their errors, or high-ranking officials being removed from office, as you mentioned earlier or even sometimes them just resigning on their own accord. And we also have many people who come in to suggest the ways forward and how we could better the state. So therefore, it's quite important for scholars then to know and record all these big changes to propose the appropriate actions in the court. And that could, to some degree, contribute to why we see there's more records of disasters and changes. So actually, you can see from later Han that actually there's more than 10 high-ranking officials removed from the office because of this reason. And sometimes a lot of these removals were linked to political conflict. For example, when Dong Zhou entered the capital and took control of key establishments, he removed the excellency of works, Liu Hong, on the basis that it rained for a very, very long time. It's a good thing we don't have that going on in England anymore. Otherwise, prime ministers would be resigning every two months, Jude. <laughs> that would be surprisingly stable for us. 
So of course, on the other hand, we should also note that there are some constraints of the time. Communication was slow and inefficient, and they lacked the standardized way of recording and compiling all these events. And a lot of records also have been lost over time. So sometimes details were missing, and other times the event was simply not even known. So it's very possible that the recorded events were only a fraction of what happened. This is especially true for the regions that were outside of the core Central Plains region. So the capital and the surrounding regions were where most of the elites and educated people were. And these people were the ones with the most ability to record and compile these disasters and events. So for regions outside of these core areas, uh, they were less likely to be known and they were less likely to be recorded systematically. So this probably also explains to some extent that we actually see a disproportionately large number of observations and details in the capital region compared to elsewhere in the empire. I know you've been studying this as part of your archaeology discoveries, but how do you, as an archaeology student, reconstruct the climactic conditions of the past? So generally, there are two routes. One is through the studying of textual clues to see what we have in the records, and the other one is through more geological, more scientific means. So for the records, we actually see records of extreme weather events or even the geographical distribution of crops and plants. And this can tell us a lot about the past environmental conditions at that point in time. So for example, if, we, if a plant that's now only naturally found in a more warm and humid South China environment today was noted in the records to exist much further north in the past, then it does indicate that perhaps climate was much warmer at that point in time in the past. And for more precise estimations, usually we'll talk about a lot of geological and scientific analysis. So many things in nature are actually affected by climatic conditions. And these subtle differences are usually preserved in their chemical or physical signatures. So if we can find something that existed or was created in the past, we can extract this sort of chemical and physical information to recreate the environmental conditions back then. So in terms of earthquakes, uh, later on was a period with really frequent and devastating earthquakes. So the exact number of known earthquakes from this period varies across different works based on their different criteria and sources. But generally, they all agree on at least about 80 earthquakes in the 200 or so years of later Han. And the catalogue of historical major earthquakes in China noted six extremely devastating earthquakes in later Han, with the most severe one in the year 180 during Emperor Ling's time. So the capital Luoyang itself was one of the major earthquake regions. On over 30 occasions, earthquakes were felt in Luoyang during the later Han period, which 14 of them were during the Emperor Huan and Emperor Ling's rule. So the majority of the earthquakes were in the North China Plains or in the Western Mountain regions. But there hasn't been a very concrete explanation for why such high frequencies were noted, other than the fact that most of them were no along known existing earthquake belts. So we expect them to be there. So the effects of earthquakes are naturally devastating. Houses were destroyed and many people were killed. Uh, in places with water, the ground movements also affected how water flowed. So some of these earthquakes were also coupled with water overflowing from rivers or even tsunamis along the coast. So in fact, there were two recorded tsunamis on the East Coast during Emperor Ling's time and they were attributed to earthquakes during the same time period. And there's also evidence from archaeology. So a particular buried city called Huoluo Chaideng was discovered in North China by the Yellow River uh, within the boundaries of what Han's Bing province would be during the Han period. So analysis showed that the city was severely flooded three times between the late former Han and the early later Han periods in the first and second centuries. So these flood timings were consistent with the known earthquakes in these regions. So it was suggested that this earthquake-induced floods led to the eventual abandonment of the city around this period. So when we have all these secondary problems, the impacts will be quite amplified and quite severe, and people's livelihoods will be greatly affected. And they will reduce green harvest, and the governments will have to spend lots of money on compensation and disaster relief. And we have, when we have all these events frequently recurring, it will be a heavy blow to the Han's budget. So budget and morale, it's expensive. And also, if you're constantly being on the receiving end, of consequences of natural disasters, 
I guess you might be more inclined to rebel, mightn't you? Or blame the hierarchy, even if that's not necessarily rational. Yeah, I mean, to, to them, it could be really an omen to say that the ruler is failing and the heaven is are displeased. So another aspect of this is flooding. So according to the book of Later Han, in a span of eight years during Emperor Han's time, the lower Yellow River flooded four times. So that's every two years, there's one major flood. So in the capital region, Luoyang itself, again, was one of the major regions hit. The lower river flowed through Luoyang and that eventually drains into the Yellow River. So it's not surprising that changes in these two rivers can be devastating to Luoyang. And in total, the capital was flooded eight times during Emperor Huan and Ling's time. So the Yellow River wasn't the only river to overflow. So in the south, the Han River that drains to the Yangtze was recorded to have flooded 13 times in later Han. And when we look at archaeological excavations of sites along the middle Yangtze, they also revealed similar flooding incidents. Some of these floods can be attributed to the intense rainfall over a short period of time which was noted by some of the scholars back then. But on a wider scale, there was also a lot of human and anthropogenic contributions. So the Han period was a period of rapid expansions and increasing populations. So this actually led to a lot of expansion and exploration to new lands across China, which meant that there would be rapid and large-scale deforestation as people make land for more crops. So what this led to is the more intensive soil erosion, which meant that the rivers are now carrying more sediments by the day. There's only so much room in a river channel. So when we have more and more sediments accumulating at the bottom of the river channel, then the water will be forced to overflow and go out of the channel when there's a high discharge period. And this problem was quite rampant already in the former Han period, where the Yellow River was noted to, to have carried 60% mud and 40% water, and that the river bed of the Yellow River already rose above the surrounding floodplains. So it was probably in this light that the later Han had dike projects in its early years to try to manipulate and manage the Yellow River, though it seems that it perhaps already failed by the later years of the later Han, judging by all the Yellow River floods. So the Yellow River flood in 153, for example, led to the displacement of a few 10,000 poor and hungry households in the Ji province. Water is a vector for a lot of contagious diseases as well, so these floods possibly also contributed to the spread of diseases in the poor hygiene conditions. This could also be part of the reason of the close occurrence of floods and disease outbreaks in some cases that were noted in the records. And again, disaster relief caused a fortune for the Han government, especially since the fertile flood lanes uh, hit hardest by the floods were also usually the most populated and the most developed and where most of the taxes would come from. So lastly, will be climate change. So the exact magnitude and time frame again varies. But generally, by the end of the later Han period, we are seeing a drop in temperature and a decreasing in rainfall, which meant that the overall trend was shifting to a much colder and drier climate. So generally, warmer climates are more favorable for agriculture. So a cooling climate can be quite worrying for the farmers. So modern studies revealed quite some changes to grain harvest for every one degree change in temperature. And that figure, I believe, will likely be more given the limited knowledge and capacities in the past to adopt to all these changes. So, so Gonjin, what you're saying is, Farmers, as well as facing higher taxes, a breakdown in local authority power to deal with their issues, were also facing less favourable conditions to do the work. So their produce was being decreased and then they were being taxed even more on the produce they were able to create. You can see why farmers didn't feel the system was working for them and why they want to change and why they, so many of them were willing to go under the authority of local families, can't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially since that... In the past, in ancient China, the economy in society is primarily agriculture-based, so it really is quite detrimental. While the Han taxes weren't very generous, it's definitely to a problem that if a disaster happened and there wasn't government relief, you would still have to pay the same expected taxes, even though your crop was bad. One or two years of that, and you would pr probably be wiped out. 
it, I think that is a crucial aspect because when it comes to the natural disasters, it's not just the damage from the disaster that people are thinking about for legitimacy. It's also how well can the government respond to the disaster. I mean, to, to some extent, you can't quite prevent flooding, droughts, bad harvests, but you do have the question then, if it does flood, can the government come in, build flood walls and dikes, dredge out the river for next time? Are you in a position to distribute grain and find housing for the refugees? Are your finances in a good enough state to exempt them from taxes for a year or two? And if you can do that, the people will see the government is able to respond and can actually bolster the legitimacy even though there's been a crisis for the state. But if you can't do that, they'll start asking themselves, if the government can't provide for me, who can? And they'll find who is able to do this. And it was only by 140s that we start to really see the Han unable to provide relief. Even here's some grain to rebuild, here's a loan to rebuild. The Han were getting increasingly desperate in their efforts to, including raiding private granaries, to be able to supply people. It was quite a long-term problem in terms of how stretched the finances had become by all these relief efforts, the impact of climate change. So yeah, I think I think what Drew said was really right. It was really a lot about how the government can react. Because when we look at the records about Later Han in general, we, we know that the Han's environmental issues did not only begin in the, the, the later parts of Later Han. Later Han was struggling with environmental issues since the beginning. And it seems that even when you look at the highest occurrence, it was not during Emperor Huan and Ling's rule. About just about half a century earlier, during Emperor An's time, about 90 to 130 years, in the middle of the later Han is where we see the highest occurrence of recorded disasters. And, but in these four decades, right, the, the Han lived through, through rapid responses and appropriate policies to address and elevate all these impacts. So it does show a certain level of uh, administration and government competency. But 50 years later, when we come to the Emperor Huan and Ling's time, we do not see the replication of these sort of successes. So I think it does perhaps point to a struggling government or administration at this point of time. And I think on a whole, it's fair to say that even though environmental problems certainly contributed to the fall of the Han, I think ultimately the demise of the Han may have had more to do with governance and how the administration was able or not able to react and respond to these different disasters. It's part of the implicit social contract for any state. I'd say in any time, the most basic promises the government can make to the people are, we will keep you safe, we will keep you fed, we'll prevent you from poverty. And if you can't even meet those promises, the government's going to be in a lot of trouble. It was another element in the perfect storm, wasn't it? We've talked about the impact in China of the shift in climate. What impact did the, the climate hitting the northern Xiangnu have on the Han itself because of the reaction of the tribes? So climate change is not going to look at the national boundaries and say, nope. So actually, this cooler and drier climate will also affect the, the Xiongnu and other nomadic tribes quite badly. Generally, it meant that the conditions become harsher in the north, lakes and rivers would dry up, and the fertile grasslands would shrink or even disappear. And for the nomadic tribes and their livestock that depend on these lakes and all these fertile grasslands, then it would be quite devastating. In view of that, then a lot of these people would be more inclined to try alternative means, which will bring them uh, southwards and come into more frequent conflict to the southern agrarian societies in China, either through looting, plundering, or even just assimilating and just moving into Hanlands to find new ways of survival. Which, as we all know, went smoothly and calmly with nobody abusing it. In the historical long term, we are right in the middle of the period people tend to call the age of the Great Migrations, where you have various people moving around, sometimes moving off of the Great Eurasian Steppe to try to get to more 
abundance environments. You see that in the West as well with Rome. You have a lot of groups migrating West to try to get into Rome. They want to be part of Rome where it's easier to feed themselves and there's less conflict with other groups out on the steppe. I think you're seeing the same thing happen with groups moving south into the Chinese heartland, both where it's there's more abundance for them and there's less conflict with existing groups. Interesting. So that brings us on to our next theme, doesn't it? So we've talked about issues in the Han court we thought about issues in local commanderies, we thought about climate issues, and then time to think about issues on the border. So peace might be expensive, but wars cost even more. So what tribes in particular were causing conflict on the borders? At the beginning of the period, you've got the lingering conflict with the Xiongnu, who were the major confederation of peoples along the northern border. The former Han dynasty had been fighting them for a long time as well. By the time major issues start to crop up in later Han, there's been an arrangement where the Xiongnu have split in half. There's a southern faction that's moved within China's borders that is using the support of the Han government to fight back against their rivals. The northern Xiongnu, who are still out on the steppe, who are trying to retain their independence fight the southern Xiongnu and with the Han government. That's the existing arrangement. What comes next, if anything, it might be even worse for Han, because eventually you have what looks like a great triumph. The general Doshan leads a great army out with the southern Xiongnu to fight the northern Xiongnu, wins a great victory over them, breaks their power to really threaten China, sends most of them migrating off to the west. But what it winds up doing is you kind of had the Xiongnu were the big power on the steppe. And once they're gone, you have all these other peoples and groups that they were kind of keeping a lid on that all start to compete for their own spheres of territory. The Xianbei up in the northeast, uh, the Qiang in the northwest. And there's no one big force that's able to control them. Whenever you defeat one side, there's always another group popping up somewhere that has their own complaints that's not necessarily satisfied with whatever arrangements you've made up for the, the former group. And so there's always these centers of discontent and conflict along the borders and even within the borders because you have some groups that submit and move within, but then they have conflict with the local population they're being abused by the Han governors, and so they will rise up from within to lash out at what they're seeing as unfair conditions. And so in a lot of cases, you have the government not investing in a cheaper solution earlier, leading to conflict that winds up costing them more money in the long run. Especially right in the Northwest, where you have the great Qiang rebellions, which keep flaring up every few years over the course of decades. Thank you. And is it worth saying that the Chinese Han government were very different to the Roman Empire in that for the Han dynasty, their military excursions were about securing their existing borders rather than trying to expand outwards, with maybe one exception? Do you want to talk to us about the Western regions, Drew? I would say that is probably the major exception. The difference in philosophy there might be how much you regard the Western regions as being intrinsic to any Chinese state security. There was never really seen as part of the realm itself in the sense that they never sent 
a bevy of administrators to divide up the region into proper political organizations. It was always a case of local kings who would be allied with the power in China, with Han or whoever, or they'd be allied with one of these step groups against China. And so the question was, whether you're willing to commit the men and the resources, the money to have communications with those local states to support friendly governments, to ensure that the commerce in the region and the strategic territory is on your side instead of working against you. And several times during the course of Ledehan, you'll have some great general who will propose you know, we've got to make an expedition out there, secure the area. He'll get some peanuts, a handful of men, is able to go out there and do wonders with what he has. But then he'll leave the scene. He'll die or be replaced by someone else. And there's just no infrastructure in place to maintain what was won at so much ex- expense. And it'll all be lost within a few years until they send out the next person to try again. And eventually they just stop committing even that much. And you start to hear questions of court and whether they should just give up all the territory leading out to that region in the first place. To go back to the question of differences with Rome, I think in both cases, you see attempts to bring in step groups within the empire to try and use them for your side instead of having to fight them. But I would say the major difference is at least with Han versus Rome, is it seems like in Rome, there's more an attempt to try to integrate these groups to make them more Roman. Whereas with the in Han, you tend to see the groups will be brought in, but retained as a unit. With the Southern Xiongnu as an example, they'll all be put in the same place. They'll be kept under their original rulers or the original rulership structure. I think mostly it is an attempt to try and you know, not civilize them too much. To where the advantage it's seen as the toughness of their lifestyle makes them better fighters for you to use against other groups on the step. But with less integrationalist policies... It also leads to them, when they have discontent with the dynasty, when they decide they want to rise up to fight it out, the fact that they still have their same traditions, they're in their same groups, they're all together in one place, it makes it easier for them to consider rebellion, to actually rebel, and more difficult to put it down. I always get the sense with the Western regions that it's about sphere of influence and it's about a buffer region. So if, if a power does rise up and does invade... They're not actually invading China. They've got this buffer region between them. Just whilst we were thinking about money a little bit earlier, in a book I was reading at one point, it was saying that although they got tribute from the states in the Western region, it was more about a prestige thing. It wasn't actually about them making money off of it. It was the prestige of these people giving money to them. So even when they were getting tribute, it didn't actually pay for the amount of effort that went into securing that region. It was just about elevating the importance of, of the Han Dynasty. In terms of subsidies, the Xiongnu were supposed to have got 100 million a year to maintain the Xiongnu's court. The Jinbei at one point got 270 million a year. The Western region supposedly 74 million. But the first major Kriong rebellion that cost 2 billion 400 million. I think it points to a kind of penny wise, pound foolish attitude with the government where. It's much easier to see the concrete expenses of sending or maintaining a garrison. It's a lot harder to estimate ahead of time what you'll wind up paying if not having that area winds up leading to instability or rebellions that can use it against you. With the Han court on foreign policy, 
too overly simplified to attitudes to get termed as the modernists. They would see its projection of military power as good for the imperial clan and the imperial relatives. They saw it as they had the Western regions, they had trade, they had split the truck to prevent them uniting, they would be able to flank them. And so it was worth the expense of maintaining garrisons, maintaining subsidies, maintaining trade. But say the reformists saw this as too much money on vainglorious foreign policy. What they wanted was entrenchment, less taxes, to focus more on the reform and things that would benefit the gentry more. When there were debates at court, they could very quickly, even within what would be traditionally seen as Han Chinese lands, be, we should abandon the province, we should pull back. While the Han would abandon the western regions, they wouldn't technically abandon Liang province, but what they often would do if there was trouble was a retrenchment policy of, hey, I know you've been living here, here's your farms, your community, we're going to burn it all down and bring it further inland as a scorched earth policy. For some reason, the locals tended to get a little annoyed every time this happened. They would then leave going further and further south. The governors and chief officials who were from outside the province, there were complaints from the locals that the outsiders didn't care. They would embezzle and when the trouble happened, what would happen? They would leg it, leaving the local people behind to suffer the consequences of the war. And we're going to find that that's really important in a future deep dive when we think about Dong Zhuo and his faction. Just before we move on from the Western regions, I find it interesting to note that those independent kingdoms seem to quite enjoy being in the sphere of Chinese authority because they liked the validity that the titles they got given by the Han Dynasty gave them. And they continued asking for appointments to be made from the Han Dynasty long after the Han Dynasty stopped actually existing in any real sense in the Western regions, which is just, just an interesting side note. As part of what you sometimes see called the tributary system, what we might today more be likely to call diplomatic recognition, where it kind of benefits both sides. You've got a major power, really in East Asia, whichever dynasty is controlling China is the power in the sense that America is the superpower of modern times. So if you've got a small kingdom in the Western regions that if the emperor in China says you're the king, that says a lot about your legitimacy. And then on the other side, if you're worried about your legitimacy as emperor of China and there's a state that's coming to ask you to confirm that it, that they're the king of wherever, it means they think you're the one they should be asking. You're the legitimate person to be confirming that title, which is good for you because you can say... Of course, I deserve to be the emperor. Look at all these little states. They're coming to me to have me declare who's in charge. In lots of ways, it's a win-win, isn't it? It gives both sides a sense of validity and importance. There's not even necessarily any commitment that you are actually subservient to the Chinese state or that they have any definite commitment to defend you. But it, it's a diplomatic dance that everyone likes to play for their own legitimacy. And, and maybe you can make a buck if you have some trade relationships set up. And I think you're absolutely right. So even in 383, when a Chinese army pacified one of the Western states, lots of others all turned up showing their well-kept hand credentials asking for the arrangement to be renewed. So so actually, even for the Chinese states in the Western realms, a lot of times when they are faced with internal political struggles or 
political conflicts, having the backing up of the big and powerful Han is, was quite useful as a way to establish that I'm the legitimate and I'm the righteous one in these conflicts. And we do see that a lot in the histories of uh, in the records where we see that usually during these kind of conflicts, there'll be one side that the Han would take and the side will usually prevail. I think it's worth pointing to in terms of the Han's military troubles. The Han usually were successful in their wars, eventually. Calling troop volunteers and conscripts from the inner realms, there were problems because they were untrained and so quite easy to kill. But usually the Han could eventually throw enough resources. They were very adept at finding splits in leaderships, arranging assassinations, that sort of thing. The Han had the problem of the generals might come out of this with a win and then get killed. Eventually, that would have eroded trust in the army is that when generation after generation, there would be jailed commanders or executed commanders, the Han's military policy could change on a whim. It could lead to mistakes and long-term problems because people were just doing whatever to suit them at the time rather than what's the 30 years impact going to be. So you, you can understand military commanders being punished for failing, but because the court was so inconsistent on foreign relations, even successful commanders were often penalised for being successful because the court's opinions had changed in the time they were fighting the war. As you say, that is not a way to encourage public service, is it? At one point, when I was a rebellion myself, a commander actually said, look, you keep jailing people on charges of corruption. I want a eunuch. I want someone from central court to personally oversee my supplies. So I cannot be arrested on the usual charges of corruption because that is where a lot of commanders would fall. It was a very easy charge to make. And fear of what would happen in peacetime if a commander had the personal loyalty of an army, which is particularly dangerous when as a central court you don't have a very large army yourself. The Han Dynasty was not in a very good place in 118, AD. And let's just spend our last few minutes together thinking about those last years of peace. So, was Emperor Ling a good emperor? Glorious. The Crespini comes with a very cutting line. Had any man resolved to destroy the 400-year inheritance of the Han, he could have hardly done better than Emperor Ling. Dictionary biographical description of the emperor. Yeah, that's pretty cutting, isn't it? It would have been impossible to be more efficient at destroying the empire. Quite interesting that when you look at the posthumous name itself, like Emperor Ling, the Ling, actually it can be interpreted as the state is in chaos, but its roots has not been hurt. The author of the book of the later Han actually commented that for Emperor Ling, the posthumous name was quite lenient, which I think does say a lot about the opinions of even the contemporary. I will say slightly in his favor, he had a lot of help in that regard. Not uh, not the most vicious emperor, but his problem stems a lot more from a lack of maintenance of the empire. Several bad decisions, but just de general disinterest in maintaining things. It's interesting to be an artistic, set up a school on literature, new literature styles, which had got opposed by the gentry to role play with his wives. There were a lot of long-term problems that were coming together, but he was really the wrong man to be facing those challenges. He may not have invented the population collapse in the north, like Liang province had gone from a few million to 800,000 people by the middle of the century. He may not have invented the rise in religious revolts. He may not have invented financial problems the Han were going through. And as much as I'd like to blame him, he probably did not invent climate change. But his lack of interest in ruling, his personal corruption, really weakened an already fracturing centre. 
he made every situation worse than it needed to be rather than easing the burdens, didn't he? And another decision he made was appointing governors instead of inspectors. Does someone just want to pick up on that briefly? I would say for the inspectors of the government, the governors rather, originally the highest level of regional government was supposed to be what they call the commanderies. The equivalent might be the major metropolitan areas. That those were supposed to be the chief local governing officials. And then on top, you have an inspector whose job is simply supposed to be to keep an eye on various administrators just to make sure they're doing well, recommend if someone's doing a particularly good job or advise them to be demoted or removed if they're doing particularly badly. But when you get to the final years of the dynasty, you have people, some making suggestions directly, others just kind of starting to do it informally of these inspectors just being actually in charge of the administrators under their rule to being a new level of government over provinces, basically the equivalent of the states, that they wield civil authority. They're in control of local military groups. And the more and more that became the case, the more decentralized power was compared to the central government, the easier it became for people to, by one way or another, act as warlords over the regions of the, of the land. But who would do that? Just who? You also have Liu Yan, who made a proposal to Emperor Ling that, that he should be made governor of a distant region to better control it for the sake of the court. And that was when he was sent out as governor of Yijiao, modern Sichuan in the southwest. Quite a radical change, including that they got to keep their former ranks as well. So they got a big salary on top of their governor's salary. It was a desperate move, I think, because there were lots of problems at that time, just trying to get the frontiers under control. If it had worked, it, it might have been an efficient way to restore power on behalf of the court. But at the same time, having so much power in a remote region actually made it easier for whoever was the governor to defy central court authority. With a strong emperor, it could have worked. With a weak emperor, it was only ever going to be a disaster, wasn't it? We started this episode by thinking about the tripartite eunuchs, court officials, um, family of the emperor and how that had a negative impact on the court. The end of this period is Heijin, so the family of the emperor or empress dowager, allying themselves with court officials to wipe out the eunuchs. We thought about the actual how that happened quite a lot in the previous episodes. But shall we just reflect a moment about why that was such a disaster for the state? I think in a sense that perhaps the alliance itself was not that bad, but the consequences was that when we had such large-scale conflict and large-scale killing, it created such a power vacuum that could let other people like Dong Zhuo come in and took over power. And that led to even further consequences because the balance of powers was sort of still okay within the three factions in the capital, but when you bring in external powers from northwest and from military, that adds an additional layer of complexity. I, one last thing to talk about is that despite the disaster of all of this, I find it remarkable when I think about this that other than the yellow turbans, no one is really talking about replacing or supplanting the emperor. It's just about who's going to be in control of the court. So the Han Dynasty, despite decades of various disasters, still retained support from almost everybody. Anyone have any ideas on why that might be the case? 
the later Han could draw upon the former Han for sense of legitimacy that it, instead of 200 years of rule, it's 400 years of rule. That is a long legacy. Despite its setbacks, the Han military had generally been seen as the big power that did take a hit in 177 when they launched a major attack on Xinbei and got wiped. Then you start really seeing the frontier start collapse. But the land prospered, generally thanks with irrigation projects, with new farming implements, new well bricks. The land was getting wealthier even if it wasn't going to the court a lot of the powerful benefited from the harm even as they turned away for moral cultivation to put into a modern context if the han dynasty survived for 400 years it lasted longer than the united states of america having an independent country so there was just this sense of this is going to last forever i think wasn't there so i think another element is also that we have precedents of han dynasty almost collapsing but it didn't so for example when we had the whole saga with wang mang where the wang mang took over the former han but he was quickly overthrown and replaced by the founder of the later han we also had a lot of incidents where the emperors seemed like powerless and puppet in the face of consort kings eunuchs but the han lived and throughout all these incidents, so I guess for people then, when looking back on all this history for past references, it feels to them that this could be just another one of those things. And it didn't feel like particularly something very unique or something very special. I think Yongjin's touch on something that gets missed. When people think of the emperors, they think of all-powerful that wasn't necessarily what the people of the Han were necessarily thinking. They were quite happy for the Han emperors to be sort of symbolic, keeping the balance. Ideally, rule less than the gentry did. They were quite used to powerful controllers. A Han emperor being under the thumb of a warlord, it, that was different from, say, an in-law who controlled the army, but it wasn't necessarily too different. The Han had bounced back before. People had served under the Han for generations. Perhaps if you're a frontiersman, you may have felt neglected by the Han in many different ways. But for a lot of key families, it would have been what they'd known, what their ancestors had known. I think people were believing that things were going away from the Han, that change was coming. That's not necessarily an easy thing for people to actually fully believe that the thing they've known for their entire lives was going to be over. Yeah, I think there was an expectation that the system might need to change there would be a system around the Han Dynasty that would bounce back. And that was a thought that really continued for a while. We're going to have a lot of the episodes before we next come across someone who seriously contemplates throwing down the Han Dynasty. But that's, um, that's for another day. To slightly go forward in time a little, I think most of the major players around the last years of the Dynasty still had an idea that Han should stick around. It's just a question of, what's my place in it? Can I keep my sphere of influence. And I think that's why you see there's this idea that modern readers tend to have where they think every faction is like a player in a conquest game. You start out with a little, but everybody wants to take the capital and take it all over and make it their own. And I think for a lot of the major players, that just wasn't the case. They wanted to have enough power to secure themselves, but then just 
have that be part of the system that they don't necessarily want to have it all. They just want to keep their share. And you know, later events where people tend to question why this warlord or that warlord never seemed as active as they should be. They never seem to want to go beyond their domain. I think that explains a lot of it, that not everyone's out to be the emperor. Not everyone's out to control the emperor. They just want to secure their place their faction and even those who do exhibit big ambitions later on i think it's very dangerous to assume that when they set out they went out wanting to become the next emperor because that probably wasn't something that even occurred to them as a possibility when they started regionalism gets overlooked when people look at the Han, they forget that even within Han China, there was an acceptance that each region was diverse with its own geography, its own history. And regions would have had different reactions to each other, to the Han itself. There were some areas that got more appointments by the Han, whereas others that would have felt neglected, that their education system was overlooked. Regional warlords may in fact, as Drew was saying, had a very strong interest within their own locale. So with their supporters, they would have had their eye on their benefits. They didn't care about what had been a very distant court for them. And there are particular warlords who will pick up at times where we can come back to this conversation and say, look, these are prime examples of that. So stay with us and we'll pick up on that later episodes. We've spoken for quite a long time, so I reckon it's probably time to give our listeners a break and say goodbye so goodbye from me goodbye from me bye from me too thanks again for having us our pleasure we hope to have all of you back at some point bye everyone